0: Don't get too comfortable. We're going to sing again before I finish preaching. I found a new way of keeping them awake. <laughs> Great to be back. Here we are in Boulevard and uh, my last talk in Florida. So pay attention. <laughs> Listen, we did. I forgot to ask for the passage to be read. Let me just read Mark 8, the passage we're talking about tonight. Actually, the question in the box was from Mark 9, so... We'll link that in. I will answer the question while I'm preaching, so if you put it in, don't think we've forgotten it. But tonight, we want to talk about... I want to talk about Christ's obedience and the way he predicted his death, and we'll pick up the reading in Mark eight twenty seven to 38 Peter's Confession. Uh, I, I've... Uh, just notice I got the NIV here I apologize if that uh, I had my new King James and I put it down somewhere but we'll read this it gives a good sense of the passage Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi on the way he asked them who do people say I am they replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets but what about you he asked who do you say I am Peter answered, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, and uh, along with the disciples, and said to them, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels may God challenge us with that very uh, challenging passage from, from his word. Uh, and I will deal with that question that was in the next chapter as we, uh, as we go through. And, uh, and as I say, we're even wanting uh, Marilyn Wrenth to do a little job for us as we preach tonight. But here we are. I've got to put my uh, computer where I can see it and we can roll. You know, uh, my, church, my assembly elders, when I was coming to Florida, were chatting to me about the winter, because it was cold and snowy in Canada, and uh, one of them asked me uh, a question, which actually I discovered when I got here was reflected in the newspaper in a cartoon. He said, uh, well, what's your objective for the winter campaign? Well, most of you know I stay in Boca when I'm preaching here, and I had one answer. <laughs> Boca returned. Well, I said it's also Jupiter and Hollywood and Boulevard and Miami and uh, just talked about the different assemblies but this is uh, actually <laughs> <laughs> happened to be in the paper just about the time I was thinking about the winter campaign and this is the end of it except we have a week in uh, Lutheran next week, special meetings pray for them, it's a small assembly but they're going to be televising the evening service and trying to get the gospel out and we're looking forward to encouraging a small group of isolated Christians in current in Luther, And believe me, things are not current in current. <laughs> so uh, we're looking forward to that. But we're going to talk about Christ's obedience from this passage. Today was a day when we look at what Christ taught about certain important things, what he taught about faith this morning. We talked about moving mountains and all that that meant and we want to talk about what he said about, it, what he modeled about obedience as well as what he taught about obedience. The background, of course, to Christ's obedience has to be, in contrast, to our disobedience. I think on a previous visit, uh, one occasion, you won't remember, but I keep little notes of the folks at Boulevard, you know, who's who, uh, all the nice people here, <laughs> uh, so I can remember your names, and, uh, and uh, one of the times we talked about the fall, because we need to answer these kinds of questions. I mean, why is the world in such a turmoil? I'm always being asked that. Well, why is there so much crime and perversion and poverty in the world? Uh, this is, uh, uh, these are the kinds of questions everyone struggles with, and of course, as Bible-believing Christians, you know where the answers found. It's important to go back to the beginning of the Bible, try to see the big picture, and the answer, of course, is found in that tragic chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, what we call the fall. That's the account of human disobedience, the story of our readiness to go against God's will. See, we need to understand something. uh, Well, we need to understand everything we can about God, what God's like, and it's important to know that as we get into the question that someone's asked. Uh... The important thing that we need to understand is what God wanted for us as a human race and what God wanted for Adam and Eve was not something uh, that happened. God wanted Adam and Eve not to do something, but they did it anyway. So it's a very important principle at the beginning of the Bible that God doesn't compel us to do what he wants. That's an astounding thing. An omnipotent, almighty God who controls everything, has left humans with this dimension of freedom. Uh, And, of course, the problems came out of sin, and sin came out of a choice, a choice that was made to ignore what God said. We need to remember that uh, when we talk about almost all aspects of theology. We need to go back to the freedom that we had to do what God didn't want us to do, because God allows his laws to be broken And he allows his love to be spurned, of course, because he wants a joyful but free relationship. So he allows humans to do things that are really not what he wants (coughs) because he's given us this freedom, the freedom to go against his will because he wants what what you would want as a parent. He wants loving and free and obedient response from his creatures. And the reality is, (coughs) as we read the Scriptures, that humans were able and and tragically willing to join Satan in challenging God. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that this is the seed of the problems. The problems that we face in human society were created by the fall, and they all have their roots in our disobedience. Now, that's important to remember, you see, because it's a backdrop for the total contrast that we find in the life of Christ because if you want to know what God's heart is like, then study his response to the fall. (coughs) Pardon me. What was God's response to the fall? Well, of course, ultimately, his response to the fall was to send his son, the Lord Jesus. And although three months have nipped by, it's not long ago that we were remembering that, that momentous event, the ultimate response to the fall. And that shows us the love of God. Now let me, in case I forget, just uh, refer back to the uh, question in the box, because it, it, it can tie in here quite nicely. Where was that? Uh, the question in the box is where it says "Where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, mark 946, and it comes again in nine, Mark 948. What does this mean? Uh, well, uh, I won't say a lot about this. I want to get on with the message. But, of course, that is a reference to the, to the eternal nature. Do you see, it's where their worm is not quenched. It's talking about something personal for every individual. And it's talking about the eternal nature of uh, human existence. And the reality is that, that, that bliss in heaven or punishment in hell... Is an eternal, it's not an annihilation, it's an eternal situation. As a matter of fact, that scripture is a quote from the end of Isaiah. The end of Isaiah is, a, is an incredible passage. I don't want to get off onto this, so it will be relevant to some things we're going to say. And right at the end of Isaiah, it begins to talk about a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and uh, it begins to talk about God's ultimate plans. Uh, uh, but at the end of that, when it talks about all God's promises, how the nations will, will bring their uh, offerings to the Lord, and, uh, and, uh, and, and the Lord begins to talk about making everything new, he says, right at the end of Isaiah, and I will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. See, the issue always is rebellion or obedience, those who rebelled against me, uh, and it says, their worm, possessive, will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. And that's how Isaiah finishes. It's remarkable that that book finishes in that kind of way. And the uh, the Lord's picking that up, beginning to talk, the context of that passage is offending the little ones and so forth. And he's saying what a serious thing is. And he begins to talk about the fact that, that, that those who disobey God, those who reject God, those who in particular cause a the stumbling of these little ones will be in a situation where their personal worm, their their identity, their consciousness will remain. And of course, the fire is always an image of judgment that the, the fire will not be quenched. Now, always remember, of course, when you're reading that, what God is like. That, that hell and the unquenchable fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Scripture makes it clear, God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. So it's not talking about a place where, as I just said, things happen that God doesn't want to happen, or where, where uh, God wants us to be. But you see, he's given us this freedom of choice. His desire is all come to repentance. Uh, what God wants... And what we get is determined by one thing, our choice. Uh, uh, because it doesn't override our choice. And we're going to see that. We see that clearly in the fall. We're going to see that in other ways tonight. But that, that, um, that word of the Lord is a very solemn warning about the eternal consequences of choice. That's why the gospel and, and the proclamation of the gospel is such a priority. Because we want what God wants, to see those who we know and love in the place of bliss and joy and, and uh, it's very important to remember these, uh, these little reminders from the Lord who's, by the way, the one in Scripture who talks most about hell. People who say, I don't believe in hell need to understand that our Lord Jesus is the one who talks a great deal about that because in his love and compassion he's very keen to warn us about that dreadful place that was really for the devil prepared but which we can choose to be in when we turn our. Sounds away from God, but God's response to the fall, of course, was to try to avoid all that. If the person that asks that question, wants to talk about it more, we can. But I must get through this sermon before, uh, well, before the end of the service, I suppose. You see, in contrast to all that, our disobedience, our wrong choice, uh, all those things, there's this wonderful thing we discover about the Lord Jesus. And that was where we demonstrated disobedience. Christ embodied obedience. You see, his work to save us from that place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, his work to save us from that depended on his determination to always do God's will. And that's a very important principle. Uh, We need to understand that, that while the fall arose because we were determined to go our own way, Christ always did the will of his Father. So it's that great contrast. While the fallen introduced sin, while the fallen allowed evil to flourish, Christ, by his righteous life, by his total obedience, showed total goodness in action. So you couldn't have a bigger contrast between human choices and Christ's obedience. Christ's obedience to his Father, together with a is called to all of us to be obedient to God ourselves, that sets for an an example which, when you think about it, is totally in contrast to the ethos of this age. Uh, This age is not an age that that stresses obedience or compliance in any way. Our culture culture today calls us to be self-assertive and to be independent, not to be obedient. I, I... Look in a bookstore. i got more time to hang around books a million and places like that when I'm down here. And I, I see all these books on assertiveness. It's a, the assertiveness pocketbook, a pocket full of tips and tools and techniques for those who want to set their own agenda and take control of their lives. Of course, that, that was a problem before. That, that's the human condition. We're going to set our own agenda. We're going to take control. I was thinking about how that has grown. Our culture today is, is even worse. You know, in my lifetime, I think what were the most what were the most popular worldly songs in my lifetime? And I thought, well, two of the most popular songs that are not in the hymn book, th- th- happily, were Frank Sinatra's "I Did It My Way" and remember Sammy Davis? You guys don't even know who these people are. You've lived such sheltered lives, but who's yeah. <laughs> it? "I Gotta Be Me." Uh, th- those songs, expre- those statements of self-interest, those statements of independence, those popular guys that I did it my way, they, of course, have been expressed in every age, but particularly in our age. And we certainly... Well, you look at the yeah, sometimes read through the Bible and and get the history of the children of Israel. if you want to see god 's response to the fall was patience and love. Read judges, read Hosea and see how constantly the people of God through the Bible the fall wasn 't a one time event they repeated this cycle of disobedience and God calling them and God seeking them and God trying to show his love as Hosea. Which I was chatting, uh, talking about down the road on Wednesday night, is, is is such a graphic illustration. Now tonight, what we want to discover again is is uh, how God's way to self-fulfillment and satisfaction, how God's way to to live a really successful life in spiritual terms, is so radically different from our way, and it's absolutely the opposite of all that. Do it my way. Philosophy, all those popular songs, all the worldly attributions, because remember what Jesus said, and that's why Mark 8, such a challenging passage, so different from anything you hear out there in the world. He said, look, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel, they'll save it. Backwards way round from the worldly point of view. Now we need to, uh, to deal with a few questions about Christ's obedience. So I'm going to answer three questions tonight. They weren't in the question box, but there are questions on this topic. First of all, why is it important to understand Christ's obedience? I always like to do that because you need to know that what I'm talking about is important. And then we want to talk about how, well, how did Christ demonstrate his obedience? We need to be practical and show what he did. Uh, but of course, at the end of the day, we've got to worry about our own lives and how we're going to live. So we ask the question, how should following Christ's example change my life? Well, let's deal with this. Why is the topic important? You see, some of you, or maybe, well, anyone who comes to church Sunday nights, pretty interested in Christian things, but... Um, I, I suppose some people are thinking, we got this, this uh, professor from, from McMaster in Canada talking about Christ's obedience. This is going to be a tough theology class. It's a, it sounds to me like a, a, a boring theology class, Christ's obedience. Uh, I mean, you, you're probably thinking, I, I, this guy, this preacher forgets about everyday problems. The question we want, is this relevant to my everyday problems? I mean, maybe you've got some family worries. Maybe there are work pressures. I know there's a lot of people struggling about finding a job. Maybe you're stressed because of loneliness or financial difficulty. And, and there are health issues. And sometimes when you're preaching, you know, people say, well, that's all very well, but if only you knew. Uh, and you've got to think, maybe I ask yourself, why would... Uh, Dave Humphreys come and finish his visit to Florida and say, I want to focus on a topic like the obedience of Christ. Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why, because everything, and I'm saying everything about your future relationship with God, all your hopes of eternal life, the very possibility of avoiding that place where the, where the fire is not quenched, the very possibility of enjoying a relationship with God right now, all that depends on the fact that Christ our Savior was both righteous and obedient. Think about that. You know, in the book of Romans, Paul wrote this in Romans 5-19. He wrote, For just as through the disobedience of one man, that's talking about the fall and Adam's tragic choice, just as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners that's all of us are sinners so also through the obedience of the one man the Lord Jesus many will be made righteous and he put in a nutshell the fact that the history of our salvation started in eternity past when God of course anticipating the fall remember God's never taken by surprise I mean the plans for your salvation and mine were laid way back before the foundation of the earth when God anticipating the fall heard the response of his son it's in the, in the words of psalm 40 verse 7 and and uh, in hebrews these words in hebrews 10 these words are attributed to Christ when a father hears the words here I am I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I will proclaim your righteousness. An astounding word in the Psalms. A word that's associated in the New Testament with the Lord Jesus. And I want to tell you tonight, this is important, that statement in 1 John four fourteen that we love so well, that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, that's the heart of the gospel, that became a wonderful reality only because Christ came in obedience. Any wavering in Christ's obedience, the slightest tinge of unrighteousness, would have rendered the cross ineffective to save the human race. We've got to remember, Christ is a unique Savior. This is why the gospel is the only way of salvation, and everything depended on the statement made by the Lord in his prayer in Gethsemane. In my view, the most important prayer in all Scripture, although it's hard to say what Scripture's more important than others, but remember this. When the Lord was in the garden, he said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what an important word that is. Not my will, but yours be done. And we need to understand that without Christ's total obedience, there would have been no cross. And without Christ's total righteousness, there, there could have been no cleansing of our sin. So these are not abstract topics. They're, they're, everything depends on them. That's why this topic is so important to you. And it's what motivates us to want to learn more about the character of Christ. And that's what today has been about. Really, I've been, especially tonight, I want you to understand more about what Jesus is like. And that's why I thought, just in case these guys at Boulevard about a big day We're going to sing a hymn uh, can we find, I'll put it on the screen so you don't need to look it up in the book for, for Marilyn, I'll tell you it's 428 in your red book and this is really a prayer to make now this is an important topic so you've got to learn more about it so I want you to sing this hymn when Marilyn's ready and we'll just sing the first two verses now and then we'll have the, the two at the end, I know you usually sing hymns at the end but I want it here because it's a pretty good prayer at this point. So we'll sing verses 1 and 2 with the refrain as a prayer before I tell you more about Jesus. Okay? You see, it is important, tremendously important. See, it's more than theology. It affects our eternal destiny. But listen, let's, let's learn more about Jesus. We asked to do that and, and really think about how did Christ demonstrate his obedience? Well, of course, while everything about the coming and life of Christ is a demonstration of his obedience, there's one particular way that shows, I think more dramatically than anything, the total obedience of Christ, and that is the particular way he predicted and embraced his death. And that's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the last week of the life of Christ. You see, because Mark 8 that we read is just one of many examples, but it's a good example of the way the Lord predicted his death and resurrection, making it clear he came in obedience to his Father in order to die for us. So many people... Um, Uh, talking like as if the death of Christ was an unfortunate event or an accident. What went wrong? But, you know, and and I want to go back to Scripture here. I'm going to play you a little video clip from the Jesus movie. It's just Scripture uh, of the parallel passage to the one I read to you that that occurs in Luke. So we'll do that now, and if necessary, we may have to dim the lights because it's a bit hard to see. This is our Lord, and this is Luke's account. You'll get the sound in a minute,
1: brother, I think. Who do the crowd, say I am. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you were Elijah. While others say that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you? Who do you say I am? You are God's Messiah. You shall tell no man of this. The Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. He will be put to death. But three days later will be raised to life. Follow Me, for whoever would save his own life will lose it, and whoever would lose his life for My sake will save it. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole earth and lose his own soul? If any man is ashamed of Me and of My teachings, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels.
0: Remarkable moment. And that it was. It's understandable that Peter would be shocked. Christ prophesies his death. He says he will be killed. And and Peter, of course, he's only just realized that Jesus was a Christ. He's just confessed that Jesus is a long-expected Messiah and his witness. Well, he's witnessed many times how Christ had total control as God. And he just couldn't understand this prediction of Christ about his death. And so, in protest, Peter began to rebuke the Lord. I think that's a remarkable encounter. And Scripture says Peter actually took Christ aside and began to rebuke him. Now, rebuke's a strong word. It's actually a word of command. It's a word used, for example, when Jesus rebuked the storm and still the water. And it's used twice. Notice this. Verse 32, Peter rebukes Jesus. But then, verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter. And here you see it. The issue, it's always the issue. It's clearly who's in charge. Uh, And Jesus' response to Peter just reminds me where disciples belong. Verse 33, he said, get behind me. And verse 34, you come after me. And this principle that Peter had to learn, and a principle we must never forget is illustrated so dramatically here that disciples are not meant to call the shot. Disciples are meant to follow Jesus, and and Peter had to learn that. And and Jesus sees that, that really Peter is thinking more like the devil at this point. But you know, as I studied this, I began to realize that sometimes we can think like Peter did then. We can begin to imagine that God's rule and God's anointing means, well, we avoid suffering. It it means we can enjoy prosperity without pain. We can have glory without humiliation. Of course, Jesus was teaching, you can't have that. uh, Because this way of thinking, again, a reverse of what Jesus taught, is totally rejected by Christ, because Christ knew that he must allow himself in obedience to the will of God to be subjected to the greatest shame and pain imaginable before his resurrection and his exaltation to the throne. He was showing us that humiliation comes before exaltation. So Peter's call, Peter was saying, exit now. Peter was going back to this choice that we have. And he's saying, Lord, Lord, be this, this has got to be far from me, but from you, but of course... Exit now was not an option for the Lord Jesus. I know I I found it so fascinating in studying this to put the complete story together and look at all the Gospels and see how everything that happened in the last week of Christ's life seemed to ensure his death. And I want to review that story, a well-known story for you, just to, to get a grip on that. First of all, remember that Christ timed his last journey to Jerusalem so that he would be in Jerusalem for the Passover. We would just been at that spot in December. That's a different crowd at Passover time, but it's, it's a busy place. But I've got to tell you, at that time, mingling with thousands and thousands of other Jews who always went there for this, the greatest of holy days, the Passover, it would swell the population many times over. And at that moment, Jesus chooses to enter the city. He rides down the side of the Mount of Olives and I get excited now. I've been there and seen these pictures through the Kedron, uh, seen the places, not just the pictures. He rode through the uh, villages of Bethany and Bethpage that you read about in Scripture through the Kedron Valley and finally he got up to the city and he went through a gate near the temple. Now this is a modern picture with the with the dome there, you can see. Uh, but he went there, not riding a stallion, but straddled on a on a humble donkey. You see, remember when the Lord went in Jerusalem at this strategic moment, there was no army behind him. There was just, well, a few illiterate Galilean fishermen, a, a reformed tax collector, uh, several women, just a regular crowd. And he went there. He carried no weapon but his piercing wood, and he, he rode... Wo- well, not towards a throne. He was riding towards a cross because the Lord's crown was going to be fashioned not out of gold, but thorns. Uh, and his entrance into Jerusalem was, was, was staged to set the stage for his death. You see, as he went, the crowd cried, Hosanna, King, Son of David. Now that made it clear, of course, that Jesus was, from the authorities' point of view, think about the authorities' point of view, he was dangerously popular with the people. Jesus rolled, he was popular, people shouted acclaim, uh, uh, and so what's going to happen? What are the authorities going to do? Well, I've got to tell you, everything he did in the next five days was like another nail in his coffin. And it becomes clear as the days unfold from that moment that the stage was, was about to be set and it was d- deliberately confrontational. You know what Christ did? He goes straight to the temple and he confronts the money changers. And then he goes out and he debates the Sadducees about the resurrection, a doctrine they didn't believe in. And then he, then he starts preaching a long homily where he constantly repeats, these are modern Pharisees, I see by the look of the glasses they're wearing, but where he he constantly repeats, woe to you, as he lambasts the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. So every day in this last week, he came down from the Mount of Olives, came down from Bethany, where he spent the night with friends, and he spoke uncompromisingly about the failure and the hypocrisy of the religious powers in the city. After that, of course, when uh, I mean, you think about it, it's significantly popular with the people. The, the, the religious contentions are going on between the Romans and the Jews, and there's this widespread messianic expectation that in Jerusalem they're all talking about that expectation. It's teeming with passionate religious pilgrims. What does it do? It precipitates a crisis. Uh, and, and the thought, she said, we've got to do something about this. And I've got to tell you, as I've studied that week, there was nothing in that last week to suggest that Jesus ever did anything to avoid what he clearly predicted. He predicted the inevitability and necessity of his death, and that he was orchestrating it. The plot to actually bring about his death started among the chief priests and the elders of the people and the scribes. In other words, the local religious and political elites. They were beside themselves. Uh, And they were very powerful groups. So they conferred together about how they could possibly arrest Jesus and how they could have him killed and yet avoid difficulty with the common people because Christ was obviously very popular among the common people. Now, while all this plotting was going on, what was happening Jesus? Well, he went off to the house of someone called Simon the leper, presumably someone that the Lord had cured of leprosy. There he was, and they were eating dinner. And while they were eating dinner, an unknown woman slipped into the house, and she anointed Jesus with a jar of very expensive perfume, and she anointed his head with it. And it was this act that Jesus identified as a harbinger of his impending death. He said, just as the bodies of the dead are anointed for burial, so he said, this woman has anointed me for my burial. No question, the death of Christ was no surprise to Jesus. And in fact, the very next day, the day of unleavened bed, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you arrange for the keeping of the traditional Passover meal in an upper room. You know that story. And it was at the Passover meal that Jesus made it clear that one of the disciples would betray him when he predicted not just his death, but Judas's betrayal. And it was there too that Jesus took the Passover bread and gave it new significance. He said, Look, this is my body. And then he took that Passover cup and he took that cup of wine and he said, This is my blood. And it was with these words that the Lord made it absolutely clear that his life and his death and his coming to us in human form was for one purpose to die and deliver us in a new and a wonderful way. And it's very important we understand is never doubt that the Lord Jesus came to die and that he went to the cross and he saw it ahead of time and he saw it as an event desired by God the Father and as something he was ready for. People so often misunderstand that the death of Christ. It's in planning Jesus' terrible death that God the Father had Christ's total compliance. You think about it. Think what happened when they came to arrest Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know these stories, how Peter tried to defend him and he actually severed the ear off one of the poor high priest slaves with a sword in his desperate attempt Desperate, is still trying to avoid Jesus being captured. For Peter, it's unthinkable that Jesus would die. But what does Jesus do? He immediately heals a man's ear, and he says to the soldiers, "Well, who are you looking for? I'm the one you seek." Just gave himself up, and it becomes absolutely clear when you put the whole story together that Jesus intended to give his life on the cross, and that was going to happen at the end of the week. And look, think what happened at this trial. This trial is astounding. You know, Peter was, uh, Pilate was very reluctant to condemn Jesus, and he tried to get out of it. He desperately tried to palm this problem of the Lord's trial on Herod. Herod was a Jewish king in Galilee, but but and that was Jesus's home district. But Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover, so Pilate thought this is my chance. But Herod, no, he came back. And that he was. But you see, throughout his trial, one of the astounding things that people overlook is the fact that Jesus refused to speak one word in his own defense. And you say, Why? Anyone being on trial would speak in their own defense. But you see, he was determined to die. He was determined to die for our sins in absolute obedience to God's big plan of salvation. And it's an astounding story. It's a story you should never get tired of reviewing. It's the account of how the only one who was totally righteous, the only one who was without sin, embraced, not just accepted, but embraced an undeserved and unimaginably horrible death so that all our sin could be forgiven and we could have new and eternal life. And that gospel has got to move us all. You know, I think if the gospel is properly presented people understanding the love of Jesus in this way, how can we not respond? You see, there's so much in Scripture about Christ's obedience, but I think his death is the, is the paramount example. There are other Scriptures. We don't have time to do the full study, but just have to remind you of a couple. Philippians 2.8, about the Lord Jesus. He humbled himself. And, well, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And perhaps the verse that summarizes the whole matter as well as any is John 10, when the Lord speaks about his Father's love. And he says in John 10:17, he says, The reason my Father loves me is what? I lay down my life only to take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father, Link with the Father, Everything's strongly bound up with the Father's will, but very clear, no one takes it from it. It's a choice. Just like we had a choice at the beginning. And, 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 and how sad that people don't understand this, that it was in obedience. You know, Scripture even goes far, as far as to say in Hebrews 5, 8, that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. he was, he found out by experience what it's like to really suffer. That's what I was looking for. Now be careful, by the way, how you understand this verse because you see, unlike sinful humans like us, we need to correct our ways to learn things. To learn things, we have to unlearn things. Uh, We have to listen to God's word to learn things. But of course, Christ was a sinless one. Uh, He didn't learn by unlearning. Don't mistake that. Uh, You see, but the reality is the best way to learn sympathy is by suffering ourselves. The best way to learn sympathy is to experience yourself what another one's suffering. And that's all the Scripture is saying. I mean, you can read about sickness and pain. Uh, You can even see it in others. I see it all the time on TV. But it's only when we're in pain, it's only when we're really sick, that we feel it's reality some of you know when I first started coming down here, just going into the Lord's work, I had this quintuple bypass operation. And I got to tell you, I know that when I'm doing a pastoral call in intensive care, I approach people lying in intensive care in hospital in a different way than I used to when I never had any health issues. But when I would see them in intensive care, at least I can stop by saying I know how it feels. You know, I don't know why Vivian did this, but when I was in intensive care, my daughter was a missionary in the Philippines, and she took a picture and sent it to her, as if that would uplift the girl's spirits. There I am, look at me. I, I was breathing on a machine, and, and Vivian's holding my hand and wondering whether I'm going to be here or in heaven in a few minutes, and they take a picture to cheer my daughter up <laughs> <laughs> but i got to tell you, i got to get that off. I don't like to see that. But I tell you, that kind of experience that I went through, man, that experience taught me something about empathy that theory never could. Oh, I used to visit people in hospitals and say, oh, yeah, it's tough. I know how you feel and all that stuff. But you see, I, did, I wasn't empathetic. And it's a wonderful thing. And I want you to get this. It's a wonderful thing to know that our Savior learned things about the situation we face by His suffering. Tempted in all points without sin. Uh, uh, And He was given no exemption. Remember this, our Savior, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, was given no exemption from hardship and pain. And, And it's just wonderful to know What a difference it is to go to the Lord when we have problems. I talked about the difficulties in your life, perhaps, when you have loss, when you have pain. You go to him knowing for sure that he can say to us, I know, I've been there, I've felt that too. He can say what I say when I visit, I know what it feels like. And that's a wonderful verse about Christ learning by what he suffered. And it's an encouragement to us. But I need to get on and and challenge you because Christ, of course, was perfectly obedient. But how would following example of Christ in this regard, in obedience, change our life? That's Christ's obedience, but what about ours? That's where the rubber hits the road. You see, I think at this point we need to move from the story of Christ's obedience and even from the comfort that, that Christ can bring into our lives and squarely face the challenge that this passage talks about. It talks about our own obedience. know what Jesus said, Mark 8, 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is an incredible challenge for anyone who claims to follow Christ. And let me tell you, people underplay this passage. The cross Jesus is talking about here is not those little things uh, that we often say are our cross to bear. I, you meet people and they say, oh, you don't know what a difficult neighbor I've got. You know, it's a cross I have to bear. I talked to one man who said, my paycheck's delayed again. It, it's a cross I have to bear. Uh, maybe you've got... I don't know what crosses you've got. One fellow said to me, my cross is my mother-in-law. <laughs> Maybe you have to bear the boss's mother-in-law. Who knows? I've got to get that off the screen and say, look, what Jesus is talking about is not those crosses. Christ is talking about the challenges we endure for his sake. Don't mistake this. You know, we can't even call a handicap or an illness a cross in the sense that Jesus is talking about it here. What Jesus is talking about is walking in his steps and embracing his lifestyle by actually living out in the workplace and in our everyday life, the life of Christ. And when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, he means that that what we're supposed to do is put his priorities and his purposes and his will Ahead of our own. That's what obedience is. He said, take up the cross and deny yourself. Uh, and it's a straightforward call to follow him, even if it takes us to places that, that are dangerous and difficult and demanding. And I say this because so many Christians seem to assume that, that following Jesus takes us into always green pastures and trouble-free existence. And notice the priorities here. Notice, you see, choice always comes in, as we said at the beginning all the way through, Mark eight thirty six. The challenge is what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? We talked about the eternal nature of the soul, and that's the question that echoes into our lives. The question echoes the call that we need to make to assess our priorities. And the bottom line is to think what's important in life. Jesus said that you can have it all, gain the whole world, but what's the profit? We need to keep going back to this because it's so easy to get into desiring things. Well, you know, I desire money, or I desire fame, or desire pleasure. All those things the world seeks after. You go through these um, entertainment shows and see what what they're looking for is is a star. The the, the, the fame. I want to remind you tonight that God has plans for your life. God has plans for your life. God has plans for all our lives, but he needs our agreement. That's a fundamental basis that we start. He needs choice. God has plans for our life, but he needs our agreement. Is it possible that there's some earthly achievement that you're living for? Or is it I start on God's walk of fame. You know, your name here on God's walk of fame. Because what Jesus calls for is actually a radical reorientation of our lives. And and my last talk in Florida has got to be this. that, that It's a call to focus on obediently trying to do God's will in every situation you meet. And that's what Jesus is calling for. And it's tough. I mean, nothing, as I said at the beginning, could be more opposed to the spirit of our age than this teaching of Jesus. I mean, totally different from anything you'll hear out there. What we're encouraged to think in the world is this. I am numero uno, number one. The ad campaigns, you, they all say pamper yourself. They'd have us believe, some of them would, would have us believe that we can ingest virtue and real life from what we wear and what we eat and what we drink. Jesus is saying, No, oh, divest yourself of all that. And it's not just getting rid of stuff. I mean, it's not just saying, like a preacher might say, hey, don't spend so much time watching TV. or uh, You spend more time talking to other people. Spend time more building relationships. But Jesus is going beyond all that. That's all important. But he's saying, no, no. What he's saying is, you need to take up my cross and go walking with me and go in obedience to my word. And we talked about uh, the eternal nature of uh, judgment uh, earlier on, and look what he said. Matthew seven twenty one. He says, look, I look at this verse, and you know, He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven. But who? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, obedience was a criteria. True obedience. And that's more than an act. It's an attitude. It's a lifestyle. And that's what Jesus Jesus calls not for us just to do certain things, but to live in a certain way and have the right attitude and have a certain lifestyle. And he's not asking us to do that. I could have said about eternal punishment more and more as we talked about where the worm dies not. But, but you see, it's not to be motivated by fear. It's not my job to make you feel guilty. It's not my job to say, out of duty, you've got to do these things. It's the fact that the Lord Jesus calls you. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That is the bottom line. It's about love. You see, I'm not great at doing the dishes. Vivian will tell you what, what a pathetic uh, object I am in the kitchen. But I can tell you. She only has to give me that smile and say, if you love me, and I got the towel in my hand, and it's better than any coercion of the, the threatening. So if you want any supper, you better do the dishes. You see, Jesus said, if you love me, that's the motivation. And I want to stress that it's so easy when we talk about the eternal state to get the wrong emphasis. You see, the Lord Jesus, he glorified the Father through his obedience. And you know what he offers? He offers the opportunity motivated by our love for him, to glorify God through our obedience. And that's a huge privilege. To honor Him. We sometimes sing that song, to honor Him in all I do. And that's a motivation for excellence. Time flies when you're having fun. I've got to sing that hymn. Sorry about it, I just noticed. 4.28. Let's sing those last two verses and as we get the pianist up, Let me remind you that true obedience is an attitude that leads to action and to a lifestyle. Empathy is action. Think about that and let's sing these last two verses as a closing prayer. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, and the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. For your blessing and his glory. Amen. Thank you for your patience. You always allow me a little extra time. At least I take it. And I will be back next year, God willing.